Hello and welcome to the November 2023 episode of Chattering with ISFM. I'm Natalie Dalgray, Head of ISFM and host of this month's podcast. First up this month, I'm speaking with Dr Kelly St-Denis on her latest publication in JFMS. And that looks at the benefits of being a cat-friendly practice with regards to laboratory testing and improved diagnosis of common feline conditions. We're also featuring our monthly JFMS Clinical Spotlight interview. And this month, the focus is on surgical management of biliary tract disease in cats. I'll be speaking with Dr. Daniel Lowe on his review article. So we are talking about your paper today, and the title is Cat-Friendly Practice Improves Feline Visits Resulting in Increased Laboratory Testing and Increased Diagnosis of Certain Common Feline Conditions. To start with, would you be able to summarise the, the study and the study design for us? Sure. So this is something that was put together with collaboration between AFP and IDEX. So we did look at a number of cat-friendly practices versus non-cat-friendly practices in a retrospective manner. And of course, those practices had to have an IDEX account and a practice information management system so that IDEX could actually monitor the data that was collected. And they broke the analysis up into two different sets of data. So first was the financial and then also a clinical findings. Our hypotheses were that cat-friendly practices were going to be getting more income from laboratory testing, but also doing more diagnostic testing and also having increased results and findings associated with disease in cats. As vets, we're often very focused on the clinical side of things, but sometimes people that are more in the managerial side of things want to see what the financial benefit is. We have some publications that have already shown that. We know there's reduced injury and reduced insurance claims. We know from a cat-friendly clinic study done in Spain by Pierre Mercado that, again, they had shown increased income associated with cat-friendly clinics compared to non-cat-friendly. So there is information out there, but in this study, in the financial analysis, we also found similar results. They did look at two different years in the financial cohort. They wanted to look at pre-pandemic, so they looked at data from 2018 and then also data from 2021. But they were looking at things like visits per year and then the proportion of visits that included diagnostic test results. And they looked specifically in the financial analysis at blood testing, imaging, fecal testing, and urine. And then they looked at revenue per visit type and yearly revenue per feline patient. And so when they looked at those two different years, they found there was not really any difference between the two of them. So we didn't have to worry about pandemic-related factors and they did find, as was found in the CFC study, that there was an increased average per feline visit practice revenue. And they also found a higher annual revenue per feline patient for all visits and also for diagnostic visits. So where patients are actually having diagnostic testing. The other thing that they found, which was part of our hypothesis and we confirmed, was that there was a higher proportion of cats in cat-friendly practices that had diagnostic testing performed. And that was at any type of clinical visit. And then they also specifically looked at wellness visits. So I should clarify that one of the things that they did with the financial data and the clinical findings was they took out non-clinical visits. So anytime someone was spending money on things like prescription refills or um, picking up food, boarding, or anything like that, those were not included in the financial data. And then finally, one of the other findings that we had under the financial analysis was that there was actually no difference in the proportion of wellness visits but we did find an increased clinical visit per feline patient. We know that clients seem to have more 
trust and more comfort in dealing with a cat-friendly clinic or a cat-friendly practice. One thing that really struck me in the Spain studies was that 40% more caregivers were likely to buy their food at the practice. So that to me signals that caregivers are trusting us more and more willing to take our recommendations. And so when we make a recommendation for diagnostics, they're more likely to agree to it. And again, this is all correlation and not causation, but certainly that would be the suspicion. Yeah, and that was definitely my thoughts as well, that taking the time to communicate what you're doing builds that trust, doesn't it? And and the caregivers can see in front of them what we're doing with their cats and that it's different. And then the second part of the study was where you were comparing cat-friendly versus non-cat-friendly based on geographical and other data as well. So you're trying to compare like for like as much as possible. Would you be able to sort of summarise the findings from that part of the study? Absolutely, yeah. They looked during one whole year from June of 2021 to 2022. And as you noted, it was matching for every one cat-friendly practice that was IDEX with the practice information management. They looked at seven non-cat-friendly practices. And we weren't necessarily looking at the data from the geographical perspective, although that was a bit of a sub-study, just looking at regions in the U.S. and if there were any differences there that might suggest a bias. And so again, they were looking at testing categories, but in this case, it was biochemistry, complete blood count, thyroid where appropriate based on age, and then urinalysis or some portion of a urinalysis. And they took the other couple of things out, the radiographs and the fecal, because those were harder to follow because they weren't necessarily directly associated with that practice information system. So when they were looking at those, they were trying to find proportion of clinical visits in which each finding was observed, how much volume of testing categories as a proportion of clinical visits occurred, and then the proportion of diagnostic visits with one, two, three, or four testing categories. So did they just do biochem, biochem and CBC, biochem and a urinalysis, for example, or all four? So in the clinical findings, the visits per cat and higher diagnostic inclusion reflected what we found in the financial analysis. And then what they found was that the cat-friendly practices were more likely to include testing across multiple testing categories. So biochem, CBC, thyroid, urinalysis, and significantly lower odds of performing testing in only one category. And then when they looked at that in more detail, they had significantly higher odds of performing testing from more than one category. So the cat-friendly practices were more likely to do more testing in multiple categories. And then when we look at actually findings that they had, when we look at cat-friendly practices, we're more likely to have a result within the reference interval for most analytes when there were abnormalities found They were more likely associated with endocrine, thyroid, for example, kidney and electrolyte system categories, which reflect those common problems that cats get as they age. So those were kind of like key findings for that section. In my own practice, if I'm seeing senior cats, I want to start testing them early, even before they're showing any history or clinical signs of disease on physical exam, because I can get baseline values for those patients and then trend them. And so when we're finding more values in the reference interval, that means we're probably having more opportunity to trend our patients, which is proactive. Thank you so much for your time today. Hopefully the people listening will find the links to the full paper in the show notes and dive in and and read it in full. Yes, please do. Thanks, Nat. (laughs) Thank you, Gally. And now we're speaking with Dr. Daniel Lowe on his JFMS Clinical Spotlight article, on the surgical management of feline biliary tract disease, decision-making and techniques. So just to get started, Daniela, I was wondering if you have a preferred diagnostic approach to deciding if surgery 
is indicated in cases of especially extrahepatic biliary obstruction? First off, every case is unique and should be approached on an individual basis, although a general approach can be discussed. First, you'd suspect hepatobiliary disease on the basis of misrepresenting clinical signs. You'd narrow down your differential list after doing hematology and biochemistry. Certain abnormalities on your routine clinical pathology would lead you to suspect biliary tract disease in a cat. Then you'd normally proceed to imaging to diagnose extrahepatic biliary tract obstruction. I'll abbreviate this as EHBO from now on. For imaging, most likely this will be uh, abdominal ultrasonography. Um, most practices should have access to this imaging modality, but it has to be said that you need an experienced operator to be able to look at the biliary tract. Once you've performed all that and you've diagnosed extrahepatic biliary tract obstruction, you should also be diagnosing the underlying cause and further decisions will be made on this basis. For example, inflammatory and neoplastic biliary tract disease will be approached very differently. But broadly speaking, the practitioner after diagnosis would need to decide whether to proceed with medical or surgical management. Surgery uh, would be indicated if you have tried medical management and it has failed, or if you think that medical management is very likely to fail, but this goes back to the underlying cause. And finally, the surgeon is not the sole decision maker in these cases, as usually uh, collaboration with other colleagues from other services would be required. So you wouldn't and necessarily be working by yourself. Brilliant. And I was quite interested in the paper and reading about this sort of stenting procedure as well. And in the case where you're having to place a stent, how long does that stent generally remain in place? Biliary stenting is not the same as cannulization of the biliary tract. Cannulization is performed intraoperatively and you remove the cannula once you've confirmed the patency. Stenting provides temporary relief of EHBO. A stent is placed with the intent to maintain a lumen within the common bowel duct on a temporary basis until the swelling and obstruction resolves. So the stent is placed and anchored with monofilament absorbable suture material, PDS or monochrome, for example. And what this does is as it's absorbed by the body, the stent will pass into the gastrointestinal tract once the suture has lost its tensile strength. PDS would probably last longer than monochrome, so the choice of suture material would be at the discretion of the surgeon, depending on how aggressive you think the disease is and how long you think you need to maintain that stent in place. Okay, brilliant. The article also mentioned cholecystotomy tube placement. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what they are and what the indications for their placement are? A cholecystotomy tube would be a tube that's placed into the gallbladder and exiting the body, creating an exit for bowel. This works similarly to a biliary stent in that it provides a temporary biliary diversion and it is not a definitive treatment for any disease, but just provides temporary relief for whatever the underlying cause is. Cats are limited by their size. Briefly, a stab incision is created in the gallbladder and you place a pigtail catheter around a purse string suture and then you exit it through the body wall. So it's very much like a gastrostomy feeding tube, just in a different luminal organ. And what you do is you can use this tube to remove uh, bowel from the gallbladder so that you don't have any further progression of the EHBO while you are treating the underlying disease by another means. And these tubes are normally pulled after three to four weeks and you can remove them just like any other ostomy tube, an esophagostomy tube or gastrostomy tube. 
Should this type of biliary tract surgery really always be left to the specialists or are there some procedures that you think could be suitable for potentially more advanced or experienced general practitioner vets? I think cholecystectomy and treatment of bowel peritonitis may be performed by advanced practitioners who are familiar with the procedures and with prior experience of soft tissue surgery as a lot of the soft tissue surgical principles can be extrapolated to these procedures. Other procedures such as biliary diversion or cholecystectomies, they are much more advanced and should only be performed if you have prior training or mentoring in these procedures. If that's not something that you have any experience with, then it's probably best to refer these cases. It's also useful to refer because these cases always require a multidisciplinary approach and the surgeon is not the one working in isolation. You are going to need intensive perioperative care. And if your facilities aren't adequate, then best to refer again. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today, Daniel. I've definitely enjoyed reading the article. I think for most of us in general practice, there's some really useful bits of information in there. So thank you so much. Yes, and thank you for having me. And if listeners have any any further questions or wondering about biliary tract surgery, then please do take a look at the article. Thank you for listening. If you're an ISFM member, don't forget you can access the full version of the podcast and all the other ISFM member benefits, including Congress recordings, monthly webinars and clinical clubs, the discussion forum, and much, much more at portal.icatcare.org. We'll be back again next month with an additional bonus episode as well as our regular monthly chatterings. If you don't want to miss out, do make sure you've signed up to Chattering with ISFM on your preferred podcast platform.